Welcome back to Lectures with Mr. Judy. I'm Mr. Judy, and today we got one of the big guys in our history. We have Andrew Jackson, and we're going to take a look at some of the actions in office today that are controversial and the the outcomes and consequences of these actions. Now, as I mentioned, whether you think Jackson was a king or whether you think him grabbing the authority and power like nobody else had in the history of the presidency, you know, whether you lean he was a good president, whether he was a bad president or just kind of stay in the middle of, I don't know, because he's just kind of controversial and I can't figure out where I'm at. He does change the game with how we think about the presidency, what the president can and cannot do. And today we're going to get into a little bit more of that with his actions on the Indian removal, internal improvements, and the bank war, and start to kind of see how he he does change the game of the presidency. So Martin Van Buren, who was President Jackson's advisor, and a lot of the reason why he ended up in office and also becomes president after Andrew Jackson, says Andrew Jackson had three goals as a president. Number one, remove the Indians from the vicinity of the white population and place them west of the Mississippi River. Goal two, stop the abuses of the federal government in regards to internal improvements. This means waste, right? And, and, uh, you know, just wasting money as well. And then three, oppose the reincorporation of the National Bank. And if you're going to change the course of government as much as Andrew Jackson does, but with doing that, you also have to understand there's going to be opposition, and opposition is going to come in the form of the Whig Party at the end of his presidency. So, remove the Indians, put them west of the Mississippi River, stop the abuses of federal government regarding internal improvements and spending, and then oppose the reincorporation of the National Bank. That's what we're going to take a look at today. So let's go. Lectures with Mr. Mr. Judy. Woo! Okay, Indian removal. So let's take, let's rewind a little back and go to Thomas Jefferson first. Um, So under Jefferson, the official policy of the United States government towards American Indians was either assimilate into white society or you go west and you find new land. There had been various treaties formed and there had been some battles fought, you know, more minor type battles between the United States government and various Indian nations to remove them from certain sections of land and continue pushing them west. And so most native tribes in the north had already signed removal treaties after the War of 1812 and began finding new areas to settle. Now, not all these areas were necessarily west of the Mississippi River, but these areas also weren't the traditional homelands of these tribes. And so they're continually searching, right? And they're continually getting pushed more and more west now that's what's happening in the north right the tribes seem to be a little bit more willing to to kind of be moved um and whatnot and it probably goes back to king philip's war in the late 1600s as well with many of the tribes kind of seeing the writing on the wall and understanding you know it's either going to be 
stay and die or move and see another day and maybe preserve your culture and your tribe. Now in the south, we have five main tribes. We have the Cherokees, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Creeks, and the Seminoles. And by the way, I just got to say, I love just the name of Chickasaw and Choctaw. I think that they're just like really, really cool names. But these five tribes, right? They refuse to move and, and just say, this is our land. We were here first. What are you going to do about it? And the land is distribution in the south seemed to be a little bit different in the north whereas land in the south was generally more used for farming and so it was kind of easier for some of these tribes to find pockets or areas within a state and just say hey look this is just going to be our land you can have all this other land to farm we're just going to keep this one right here um, now the tribes did sell off a lot of their lands and gathered together in areas like i had said you know these pockets um, just to try and avoid open conflict as much as they can. The problem is, is these pockets that a lot of the tribes gather into are the desired farmland. Like as more and more farms are expanding and more people are going to the South to try and follow their version of the American dream with being a farmer, we're finding out land is just getting eaten up quickly. And it all of a sudden seems like there's no more land for, for everybody. And so there are a fair amount of people within the tribe, spe specifically younger people, that are going to try and assimilate. However, the tribe as a whole refuses and says, hey, we're still going to you know, try and hold our lands. We're still going to try and hold our culture as much as we can. The three states of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi invalidate federal treaties, and they tell the Native Americans, you got to leave, right? The state is now confiscating your land. We're going to kick you off. We are going to sell this land back to farmers. And the Native Americans said, yeah, but we have treaties. Like we have treaties with us and the, the national government that say we get to have this land. And you're not allowed to kick us off of this land because, you know, last we checked, Article 6 of the Constitution, Supremacy Clause, national government beats your puny state government. So what of it? And this is going to be another big challenge of federalism kind of similar in certain ways to the nullification crisis. However, you're going to see maybe a little bit different kind of outcome with this, with this one. So in 1830, Congress is going to pull an about face and pass the Indian Removal Act. And it's going to say, all right, these five tribes in the south, you're, you're gone. You got to go west. Mississippi River, we don't care where you go past it you just got to go past it and the Cherokees the Cherokee Nation has probably the biggest footprint in the south as far as popularity and and relationships so the Cherokee Nation is going to take on the bulk of this and sue the federal government and in the case of Cherokee Nation versus Georgia the Cherokee tribe says that the treaties with the federal government supersede the new state laws and is going to challenge the constitutionality of the Indian Removal Act, saying that because Native Americans are considered a sovereign nation according to the according to the Constitution, you can't just kick a country out of your own country. It just kind of seems weird. So the Supreme Court hears the case but refuses to 
rule on the case on the merits, saying this feels like a case of original jurisdiction. The Constitution is pretty clear on what the Supreme Court can hear um, as a first-time case, and this is typically not one of those. And so the Supreme Court refuses to rule on it. However, one year later, in the case of Worcester versus Georgia, the court rules the Cherokees are a sovereign nation and cannot be removed by Georgia law. The Cherokees get this big win and are like, yes, we get to stay. We get our lands back. You know, take that, Georgia. Except Georgia has this person named Andrew Jackson who, who sides with Georgia as the state and refuses to listen to the Supreme Court and sends in the army and says, nope, we're, uh, we're going to remove you anyway, right? So this is where, this is what we call the Trail of Tears. And Andrew Jackson is going to send an army of over, over 7,000 men to escort these five southern tribes out of their lands west of the Mississippi. And this happens to be a really good example of kind of that cult of personality, that force of personality, that, hey, I'm the president, what I say goes. And yeah, I'm going to overrule the Supreme Court and we're going to see what what the court or anybody else does about it. And so over 16,000 Native Americans make this trek from southern Tennessee to Oklahoma, right? The gathering points in southern Tennessee, this kind of area, and they're going to send them to Oklahoma. Over a quarter of the 16,000 people die on the way. And it looks really, really bad. Now, for the few remaining tribes that had refused to move west and had carried this grudge against the United States government, obviously they're going to be riled up. Um, this leads to, to things like the Black Hawk War, and the Black Hawk War is kind of special to me personally. It was the Sac tribe, or the Sauk tribe, and the Fox tribe, they unite together, um, and they go against the United States government for lands in Illinois, saying, you know, you, you kicked our brothers out in the south, we refuse to leave. Um, you've already kicked us out of our lands of Green Bay. Now we're in Illinois, right? And they are just badly beaten and, and sent to Oklahoma. And the reason why I say the Black Hawk War is special to me is because that, that's my personal tribe, right? I'm about a third Native, Native American, and I am directly from the Sock and Fox tribe. And our reservation is in the, the middle of nowhere, Stroud, Oklahoma, and it is a direct result of this, of this war. So... This is a big evacuation of Native Americans from the east to west of the Mississippi. And it shows how majority rule is unfair, right? It's one of the, it's one of the things that is becoming more and more of maybe an ignorant statement when people say, well, if that's what the majority of people want, you should just give it to them. And the question is always, well, what if the majority is wrong, right? And this is also gonna show, when you have a person in charge with real, with no real challengers, no real checks and balances on that person, no real way to challenge, you know, who's in charge and kind of make them think, hey, maybe what you're doing isn't a good idea. This is kind of what you look at because 
the Native Americans clearly did not have a big enough voice in American history to really challenge Andrew Jackson. They were seen as kind of a second-class, second-rate citizen. And so even though the Supreme Court rules in their favor, it doesn't matter. In the end, Jackson wins because of his force of personality. And so just to recap this section, right, we have five tribes, the Cherokees, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Creeks, the Seminoles, they're inhabiting the South. They have a fight against Georgia because Georgia says we're going to kick you out. Congress passes the Indian Removal Act. The, the entire deck is stacked against these tribes. They sue. They do exactly what the Constitution says to do, right? They sue. They win. They actually defeat the federal government on its merits. And yet the president, Andrew Jackson, says, I do not care might makes right i am in charge of the military and so you're gonna have to leave because i want you to leave because what we want is this land for farmers right and that's the unfortunate story it leads to the trail of tears we have over four thousand people die along the way and no real accountability for those deaths besides oops right and so this is a really sad episode in our history because it really makes Andrew Jackson look like a bully and look uncompromising and look like somebody that you can't work with, which does kind of lead into the next section about internal improvements. All right, internal improvements. So under President John Quincy Adams, who was the president before Andrew Jackson, there was a big push for the National Road, the Erie Canal, kind of taken that Jeffersonian vision of how do we connect the rural areas to their urban areas? How do we get potential crops out of these rural areas into bigger marketplaces? How do we start connecting the South with the North a little bit better, right? And Andrew Jackson is kind of weird. Even though he's from Tennessee, he's seen and kind of regarded more as a Westerner and most believe that he was going to help settle the West, that he would allocate money for the West, that he'd create maps to divide the land, that he would give money for roads and infrastructure and really start setting the West up on a little bit better pace to be settled and to get people move out there and feel even like more comfortable to move out there. However, Andrew Jackson believes federal funding for extensive and expensive transportation measures was unconstitutional. He says that the United States government should not be in the business of building the roads. That should be a state responsibility. The United States government should not necessarily be in the business of building bridges. That should be a state responsibility. The United States government should only fund big national projects like the National Road. Because to him, he felt like the burden of taxes that was being placed on Americans in order to pay for these projects was too great. And so he wants to cut costs, right? Because if you cut costs, you have a little bit more money available to either finish existing projects or, or to spin in other ways. And so Andrew Jackson decides to keep funding major projects like the National Road. But on these smaller projects, right, that may only include like two, maybe three states, He's going to essentially put, put these projects up for sale and he's going to allow private developers to 
buy these projects and then finish the projects off with the idea that if you're a pri private developer, you're either going to do this out of the goodness of your heart because you love your country and you want to see it grow, or more than likely, you're going to do this because it's going to make you money. And so this is where you start to see the rise of certain families like the Vanderbilts, right? Starting in local distribution and then taking over shipping rights and creating, um, creating, you know, better routes for people on how to get, you know, your products from point A to point B, just starting this big shipping company, right? And then it expands and expands and eventually, you know, goes from little boats to big boats to steamboats to railroads and the Vanderbilts become one of the richest families in American history because Andrew Jackson puts projects up for sale and Vanderbilts are one of the few families that had some old money that were able to take on these projects and start to or finish them but then also start to make money off of them. So with Andrew Jackson pulling federal money away right and saying all right states it's time for you to pay for them by 1842 nine states default on their loans and defaulting on your loan means you're not paying your loan right and now the money is coming due and that creates a lot of problems martin van buren who becomes president after andrew jackson and then we get to william henry harrison and john tyler they inherit this mess right they inherit these nine states not being able to pay their loans and what is about to happen is we're going to hit an economic depression because states are unable to pay their loans so they either impose new taxes or if there's a state bank you know the state bank calls in its loans and with the whole idea of a loan is i'm getting money and i'm going to pay it back over time because i can't pay it all on my own right now right and so the state is the states are kind of starting to shift the burden onto the common man and a common man was saying, look, I bought this farm. It, I got to pay it off over the next 20 or 30 years. I don't have all the money to give you right now, right, for this farm. And so people lost their farm. They lost their homes. They lost um, a lot of different things. And it creates more problems than it seems to solve because the states are going to spend ultimately five times more than the federal government was currently spending before Jackson pulled the plug. States are going to spend five times more on trying to complete these projects. And it's just a mess, right? It's just a mess because maybe a private developer takes on a project and can't pay and then the state has to pick it up. But then the state has to call in its loans or create a new tax. And it's just a big mess. However, this reaffirms that land is the most valuable commodity that we have in the United States and it creates a new market. Whoever can get you access to different lands by building a road, by getting you there on a ship, you know, through the river or canal or something like that. Whoever can control this access is obviously going to be the person in the money. Speaking of money, let's get to the big defining moment of Jackson's presidency. It's not the nullification crisis. It's not trying to cut costs with internal improvements. It's not the removal of Native Americans. We're talking about the bank war. All right. 
Let's get into the Bancor. This is a big, big thing and has some layers to it, but it's also primarily rooted in personal bitterness. And this is when you see when politicians take on a passion project, especially if it's one born out of bitterness, it's probably not going to end super well. So Jackson feels that the government is too big. It controls too many decisions and it leaves a common man without a voice. This is basically what his platform is that he runs on, right? I'm the president of the commoner and the government is not allowing me to have as much decision-making responsibility as I think I should, right? And he points to the bank as the biggest cause of this. So we have the first national bank created in 1791 by Alexander Hamilton with a charter for 20 years. Right. And you remember that whole big bank war, Hamilton versus Jefferson, eventually leads to Jefferson leaving um, George Washington's administration. Right. So after 20 years, the first national bank is around. This 20 year charter comes up and it is not renewed. Right. By by President Madison. Stephen Girard, a private citizen, buys the shares in what's left of the first national bank. And after various mergers and such. It still exists today. It's just now called Citizens Bank. It's no longer called First National Bank of the United States, right? So the First National Bank, that's out. All right. The year after Madison had not renewed the bank's charter, we had the War of 1812. And as we know, wars cost a lot of money. And the government is struggling to get its money in order to pay for the war. And so now it looks like a bank is needed. So before Madison leaves office, he signs a charter for the second National Bank of the United States in 1816, again, with a 20-year charter. This time, though, it was changed a little bit from the first National Bank. The bank is owned 80% by private investors who put up their part of the money with the idea that they'll make their money and then some back based on interest with loans and fees and other things. 20% of the bank is owned by the government. Right. And really what the, the idea of what the second national bank is going to be is help prop up smaller state banks. Right. Don't don't necessarily become like the big personal bank of every citizen in the United States. Become like the big bank that takes care of all the state banks and, and smaller banks. Right. OK. Andrew Jackson um, was a failed businessman before becoming the president. And he mostly blames the bank for his failures because of a lack of credit. He felt like he continually needed more money to expand his business. And because the bank continually refused to give him more money, he feels like it was the bank's fault. Now, side note on this, whenever you ask a bank for money for a loan, the bank is going to do a risk assessment on you and try and figure out how likely are you to pay back your loan in full, on time, right or early because the bank wants to know how much money can we make off of you but we don't want to get ourselves in trouble right and that's what the bank kind of felt like with jackson they felt like he didn't have a plan for success and that he had he wasn't always honest about his payments he wasn't always on time with his payments so why would you continually fund him the problem is is in 1819 and and thereafter right after the second national bank is chartered that 
a lot of people are experiencing the same thing, right? The banks are being a little bit tighter now and people aren't getting as much access to the money as they need. And so it does lead to a heavy criticism of the banks. Some see banks as a necessary evil. It's like you have to deal with it because they have the money that you need to fund. However, you have to play by the bank's rules and playing by the bank's rules is not always the most fun. So again, Jackson believes he speaks for the common man. He feels like the common man is getting screwed over by the bank. The bank's not helping the common man. Bank's saying, we're not going to give you all the money that you want, right? We're going to give you the amount of money we think you're going to realistically pay us back. And so as the bank is, as the bank's charter um, is coming due, Jackson was keeping an eye on it. Now the bank could reapply for a new charter in 1832. It does so. Jackson automatically vetoes the bill and refuses the charter. It helps him win re-election in 1832. And he takes on the bank and he says, I'm going to take down the bank because the bank isn't helping the common man. So after his re-election, he transfers the government shares to smaller banks. He allows smaller banks to buy out the government shares. The private investors then take back their shares and whatever money they had made, right? So again, Andrew Jackson, President of the United States, decides to sell off the government shares in the bank. And again, who's going to buy these shares? The super rich, okay? Which means now you're not necessarily dealing just with the bank's rules, you're dealing with the rules of the super rich. And if you watch Shark Tank, one lesson we learned is the super rich are very interested in doing business with you as long as it makes them more money, right? So smaller banks start to call in their loans because the private investors are starting to do some, some different deals behind closed doors. And all of a sudden, now that the banks are calling in the loans, again, as I'd mentioned with internal improvements, people are going and saying, hey, listen, I came to you to get money for a farm because I can't afford the farm on my own. But now I have to pay you everything and so people are now upset at jackson going oh wait we didn't like necessarily how the bank was running before but i just lost my farm because of your bank war right because you sold the bank shares off of these private investors these private investors are jerks and i lost my farm i i, I don't support you anymore as a president sir and this really really affects jackson now if the bank isn't around to loan you money where are you going to get money that's a big question, right? So people have to borrow from loan sharks. You know, just the local rich guy in town. If you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. That's a great example of this, right? Or you go to another bank to get money to pay off your first bank. And that causes a lot of problems, right? So again, all these things go to part of the economic recession. And they also highlight this idea of laissez-faire economics, right? Laissez-faire economics, hands off, you know, government hands off, let decisions be made by commercial interest, not the government, right? Let decisions be made by commercial interest. Or in this case, let decisions be made by the people who hold the money, the super rich. And it turns out it's pretty hard and it actually backfires on Jackson. Even though he hated the bank and even though people are starting to turn against the bank and see it as a necessary evil, it does seem like the super rich, you know, don't like, it does seem like the rules that they laid out are not exactly great for the common man. So to wrap up the bank war, 
Jackson's grudge against the bank is is born out of personal bitterness because he felt like the bank wasn't helping him grow his business because the bank refused to give him the money that all the money that he he wanted. So as he becomes president, he decides that he's going to take on the bank. He's going to get rid of the bank because he sees it as a sign of evil. He believes that the bank is not helping the common man. So he rejects the renewal of the bank's charter. He sells off the government shares. And what happens is, is it leads to a lot of banks calling in their loans and people unable to pay the banks back. And now this ends up in an economic recession. All right, last section, we're going home. Fallout and formation of the Whig Party. So the bank war is going to create legitimate opposition to Jackson. And there's two main camps of opposition to Jackson. There are people who say, I'm going to remain Democrat. I'm just going to be an anti-Jackson Democrat. And then there are people who are going to go the complete opposite way and kind of renew some of those so some of those beliefs of the Federalist Party and add to them, kind of change them, right? And they're going to call themselves the Whigs after the after the uh, British patriots that fought against the British crown, right? And so again, you have the anti-Jackson Democrats and now you have the Whig Party and it looks like people are going to go against this established order. So in 1836, Jackson's not going to run for president anymore. Martin Van Buren becomes the Democrat nominee, and he wins the presidency. Why? Because the Whig Party did literally one of the stupidest things you could have done in history. The Whig Party ran four different candidates. And so the four candidates stole each other's votes or took each other's you know, potential votes. Um, because had the Whigs run one candidate, that one candidate would have defeated Martin Van Buren. But due to all the cracks you know, and people just unsure of what was going on. Martin Van Buren, the famed political strategist that helped put Andrew Jackson into office, becomes president in 1836. And, whew, <laughs> uh, so he becomes president by less than 2,000 votes. And he just inherits the biggest mess of all time. In 1837, over 800 banks close and refuse to pay out their deposits which means if you had money in the bank, you're, you just lost all that money in the bank. And so everybody loses money. Businesses close. Unemployment rate goes above 10%. And the government decided not to help out people that had been uh, victims of the recession. And they said, too bad, so sad. Um, try again next time. Van Buren does little. He just kind of figures out the banks and these private investors or these private um, people that run the banks are just going to kind of figure it out. They don't. His presidency is awful and pretty forgettable um, in the history of our presidents. He's generally regarded much more as a failure because he just refused to act. He kind of just wanted to keep the good old times rolling and was unable to. So in 1840, uh, Martin Van Buren is definitely not going to return as president. William Henry Harrison, who is also a former military hero, becomes present by a considerable margin. He wins electoral vote of 234 votes to 60. And he's basically the Whig version of Andrew Jackson, right? Former war hero, governor of the Indiana Territory, uh, brings on John Tyler as his vice president. Tyler's from the South. 
They're trying to show, hey, we can build coalitions, we can build partnerships across the country, right? Of course, William Henry Harrison is also best known as the first president to die in office. He contracted pneumonia um, during his inauguration speech and dies a month in office. He's the first president to die. It, yeah. So John Tyler becomes president. He's, even though he's a Whig or he runs as a Whig, he's really more just an anti-Jackson Democrat. And so he's kind of caught in the middle between these Democrats who no longer trust him and these Whigs who think he's going to do their bidding. But instead, John Tyler has his own ideas and he's going to pass some new tariffs. He's going to refund some of these internal improvements. Um, these projects that had failed, nobody really picked them up. He's going to start picking those up. He charters a new bank of the United States. He's kind of his own man. And he's not remembered as like this great president because, I mean, frankly, again, boring personality, right? And he's kind of caught between both lines. Neither neither of the Democrats or the Whigs really cared for John Teller much by the time that he ends his presidency. But his big deal is just trying to bring balance back to this world of chaos that happens after Andrew Jackson um, is president and after that bank war. So here we are, right? At the end of the lecture today, Andrew Jackson takes on a different idea with the presidency, the idea that the president can overrule a Supreme Court the ruling, the idea that a president can overrule Congress, the idea that the president can really do whatever he wants. And while it works out for him in some ways, because it's a personal success, Andrew Jackson would claim the Indian removal is a personal success. As a as a scholar of history, I don't think it, anybody would claim that as a personal success today. Um, and Andrew Jackson would claim wasting less money funding internal improvements. You know that these were great things. However, the bank war ultimately is going to show what happens with a personal grudge, and really starts to muddy the waters of how we remember his presidency. And then after his presidency, people have to deal with the mess because sometimes what seems great at the current moment might not be great for the long run. And that's the one of the big lessons of Jackson's presidency that most presidents and the better presidents really do start to pick up on, right? It's not just about what you want to do now. It's about what type of legacy do you want to leave afterwards? All right. I hope you guys enjoyed the lecture today. Peace, love, and hugs. I will see you back here later.